Let's pray. Jesus, I pray uh, that that last song would be true of every believer who is here today. That as we wait on your return, that you truly would be all to us. That what you've done for us, what you're doing for us, what you're going to do for us would truly be all to us. And that it would be our passion. That it would be what flows out of us. What inspires us to pursue the things that we pursue. To enter into the types of conversations that we enter into. That marks the kind of love that we have for those around us. Jesus, I pray that our exploration of your word today would motivate us to a type of living where you truly are all to us. Not just what we sing about on a Sunday, but how we live as we go from this place. Holy Spirit, we invite that change in our hearts in the places we need it most. May you be glorified in every word. That is spoken today in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, today we are in Revelation chapter 10. Uh, so go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles. We are in the start of the second of three interludes throughout Revelation. And uh, this particular interlude that we're going to be in today, uh, Pastor Chris is going to pick up on uh, the second half of it because it carries into uh, chapter 11 as well. And uh, if you were here last week, you know that we are in need of an interlude, because uh, last week was heavy. Um, boy, when you consider the six trumpets that were unleashed upon the earth and the judgments of untold death and horror and destruction to both mankind and the world at large, it was, it was a hard and heavy week. Um, and yet, I agree with Pastor Chris's assessment at the end of his sermon last week that the, the most tragic, the most disruptive, um, the hardest thing for me to grasp were those last few verses in the chapter that we walked away with. Um, they're the last two verses before our chapter today, and it's found in chapter 9, verse 20 through 22, where we read, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping of demons and idols, of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or of their sorceries or sexual immorality or their thefts. And so at the end of this untold devastation, we get a snapshot into the heart of what remains of mankind, of what remains of the world. And this is what we see. We see men and women who are suffering at the hands of the judgments of God, the just judgments of God, and yet at the end of the day, they are unwilling to bow a knee. 
They're unwilling to repent. They're unwilling to turn from their sin and turn to their Savior. And it's here, in the midst of these devastations, that we pause for an interlude. And why here? What purpose does this serve? The, question, the first question on your outline asks. There are three things that this interlude does. Interludes in general and this specific interlude. The first thing you already know if you've been here for any amount of time, these interludes are made to heighten anticipation in the unfolding story of redemption. And so just at the end, uh, just as it was at the end of the six seals, we see at the end, or I'm sorry, of the seven seals, uh, right before the unveiling of that seventh seal, and here, right before the unveiling of the seventh trumpet, and later on, right before the final judgment of sin, the final judgment of Satan, and the transition into glory, we have these interludes as a way to pause, as a way to say there's, there's more coming. And it's hard to believe, if you remember back to last week, it's hard to believe that there are more judgments to come. But again, John wants to pause by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say, wait, there's still more to come. The second thing that they do is they lift our eyes from the events themselves. They lift our eyes from the events themselves as they unfold to the One who is causing them to sovereignly unfold. Revelation is a very easy book to start reading through and to get lost in the action. And then what do we do, right? We get lost in our charts and our graphs and our debates and all of the things that are happening and, and, we, and we start getting lost in all the details. Well, this happens here, so it must mean this and this unfolds this and da 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 How could you believe that? You're a fool. And we get lost in the events. But what these interludes are made to do is amidst everything that's going on, it's made to lift our eyes back to Jesus, right? Because this book is unfolding the revelation of Him. It is made for our eyes to see Him. And so each of these interludes are a pause, an opportunity in the midst of whatever is happening to reset our focus on who matters most. The third thing that this particular interlude does is it sets the stage for God's final act in His plan of redemption. Remember, um, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, they're all interlocked. And so uh, the seventh of one introduces the first of another. So as the seals brought to us the trumpets, the trumpets are going to bring to us the bowls, which is the last in a set of some really heavy judgments that God pours out on our world. And so our seventh trumpet, this, the seventh trumpet that we're about to unveil, it is in a sense unveiling the, the beginning of the end. And so we have to know where we are at in the story of redemption. And the fact is that even though we have a few more chapters in Revelation, there's not much left to be poured out on mankind as far as God's judgments. And so this really does kind of, as I said, set the stage for that final act in 
the story of redemption. So this is a very important chapter. It's a unique chapter. And you're going to notice that there are some, uh, as we read through it, there's probably going to be some questions that pop up in your mind or some pictures that pop up in your mind as it did to mine as I read through. And so I tried to find a couple questions as we go through this chapter that are going to kind of help us understand some of the head scratchers in there. But I think at the end, we are left with a very clear call to action as a church as believers in Jesus. And even if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, I want to make perfectly clear that chapter 10 makes perfectly clear what your next step is, and that is a step towards Jesus. I understand that the things that we're talking about, Revelation is a heavy book. It's a heavy book for believers. It's not just a debated book. Amongst, but it is a heavy book with a heavy message to hold. And what we are being given today is heavy to hold as a church. And it may be hard for you to swallow if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. How a holy God would unleash the type of fury that He does out on mankind, out on a sin-cursed world. Now we as believers, we have the benefit of knowing the full story of the promise, Right? We know the whole story. We know that everything that we are reading leads to something glorious and beautiful, but you might not know that. And so it may leave you in a place of looking at God as though He is cruel or He is unjust, and yet, beloved, I, I just, I need, I need to tell you that He tells you because He doesn't want you to be in the dark. He wants you to be in the know that our sin has consequences. Our individual sin and sin on mankind as a whole that has affected the world as a whole. And he would not be who he is unless he justly judged sin. And so what we are about to read is unveiling some really hard stuff. But it's hard stuff that is made to bring us to our knees if it hasn't already. It is hard stuff that is to cause us to take a hard, long look at our own lives and to ask ourselves the question, have we honestly dealt with the sin in our own heart? Because if you have not, if I have not, then we have a big problem. And that is whether or not we ever see these these events unfold. Whether or not we are the generation that sees these events unfold or not, either way, the Bible promises that every single one of us will die and then come judgment. Hebrews 9 promises that. We will stand before God, whether it is face to face as these judgments unfold and He comes down as the great cloud rider, or whether we die and stand before Him in judgment at the end of days. And so... This is a warning to each and every one of us of what is to come because our God loves us so much. Because He doesn't wish that any would perish. Because He doesn't wish that anyone would stand to face the judgment of their sin. That's why He came down in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ. To become the perfect sacrifice for each and every one of us. It's so important that we understand this chapter in the context of the gospel and these next chapters in the context of the gospel because these judgments are not just judgments for judgment's sake. This is a holy God 
who is just in his judgments against sin and the destruction that it has called to his perfection. And so we need to see our sin in light of who he is and ask that question, is Jesus my Savior from the judgment that awaits? Have I placed my faith in him? Have I reached out and grabbed hold of that gracious gift that he offers me through his son? And if you haven't, please do so today. Please do so today, as long as you have today. And now let's read about that day. That unfolds in chapter 10. Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1. Because where else would you start if you're going to read a whole chapter? Verse 3 would be weird. All right, uh, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders sound, uh, had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel who I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Thus says the word of the Lord. So again, there is a lot going on in chapter 10. And maybe as you read through, a couple questions popped up for you. I know a couple questions popped up for me this week. Maybe your questions are my questions, and if that's... The case, then great. If you have different questions, Pastor Steve sits right there and he will take all of those questions after service. But uh, as far as the questions that I have asked that uh, we're going to take some time to answer today, uh, the first one that we got that we have to deal with is who is this mighty angel? And is he more than just an angel? Now, if I was to reread those first few verses again, and I was to take out the first part of chapter 1 that says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. If I was just to exclude that first part, and I was to read to you of one who comes down from heaven wrapped in a cloud, a symbol of coming judgment, right? Something that we 
very often see associated with Jesus in His second coming. And a rainbow over His head, a symbol of of God's promise and mercy seen around the very throne of heaven. One whose face is shining like the sun, a symbol of glory as we see in Christ in Revelation chapter 1, 16. His legs that are pillars of fire standing on both land and sea, symbolizing His sovereignty over both. And then if I was to tell you that when He opened His mouth, it sounded like a lion. And not only that, but guess what? He had a scroll in His hand. Where have we heard of a scroll being in one's hand before? If I was to just throw all of that out there, Who would you think this mighty being is? Three, two, one. Right? I mean, it would kind of be a no-brainer because of everything that we have read in Revelation up to this point. By the way, we all know the answer is always Jesus at church. Don't pat yourself on the back. Okay? Like you did some great thing. Come on. All right? My Sunday school students can do that and they're half asleep. Right, guys? Wake up. Um... No, if I was to read that to you, I think all of us would walk away. And you don't even have to be Daniel or Ezekiel scholars. You don't even need to know about the kind of the, the playoff of the Old Testament imagery here. You would just hear that and you would think, oh, we're, we're talking someone divine, right? And yet, when we have that language in the game where it says another mighty angel, meaning an angel that is different from the angels who are blowing the trumpets, Right, the angels in the in the trumpet judgments. This is a distinct, mighty messenger who is coming. Because we have that term, we do have differing viewpoints. Now, mine is obvious, right? I'm pretty bad. I'm not going to pull a 180 on you and be like, "Just kidding, you're all wrong. It's an angel." I really do think it's Jesus. I really do think it's Jesus. And yet, uh, there are many men who are far, far, far smarter than me who believe that this angel really is an angel. Um, I think we see, I think we see kind of the same picture that we see in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, where we read, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more because the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I really do believe this mixed with the other pictures of Jesus that we get within Revelation, what we see in Ezekiel 1, what we see in Daniel uh, chapter 10, I believe who we see here is Jesus. And yet, if you're here today and you're like, ah, young man, I've studied this passage before, you are wrong, this mighty messenger is an angel. That's cool, we can flip a coin later. And if you are right, or if I am right, we'll just let everybody know. I don't think this is a huge issue. Because I don't think that this text is really wanting to center in on identity. I really think this text wants us to get a taste of this being's authority. Does that make sense? 
We need to know that this being, whether he is a mighty angelic messenger from heaven or whether this is a picture of Christ himself coming down to the clouds to allow John to eat the very scroll that he holds in his hand in chapter 5, whichever this is, the point is this being comes in the name of the Lord. He comes with all authority. And He wants us to know by where He is standing, by how He looks, in the way that He speaks, and what He has on His hand, and what He asked John to do, that this being has the authority to do everything that He is doing. And so regardless of where we fall on this, it's fine. We'll write thick books later and laugh about it in heaven. But... For right now, today, we need to understand the issue here is one of authority. So again, while his identity remains a mystery, this text is primarily concerned with attributing authority rather than identity. Um, That being said, from here, we have another identity mystery to uncover, and it's found in verses 3 through 4, where we read, When he, the mighty angel, called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders had said. And do not write it down. Now would probably be a very good time to ask the question, who is represented by these seven thunders? And what did John hear but not write? To which I would say, if you know somebody who can confidently tell you the answer to both of those questions, do not give them your credit card number. Um, (laughs) That's horrible. Um, But seriously, don't. Just don't do that. Um, John talks about these seven thunders as though we should know who they are up to this point. He doesn't really give us a lot uh, by way of introduction. He just talks about them like, oh, you know, the seven thunders, they sounded. You know, like I was talking to Becky last week. You, you know, Becky with the, with the hair. It, it's one of those type things where he mentions it and you're just like, wait, where did this come from? How can you just drop that reference on me and expect me to know what you're getting at? Now, I think we can ascertain a pretty good guess as to who John is talking about here or who these seven thunders are. Um, As we see in Job 37.5, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend And again, in Revelation 4, verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of thunder. And before the throne were the burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We get sevens and thunder in that verse. That's a really good one. Uh, Here we see that the voice of thunder coming to John from heavens, speaking clear enough where John could actually transcribe what was being said coupled with the number seven, which as we know represents completeness or fullness, this separates it from other thunderous noises that we see throughout Revelation. So for instance, in Revelation 6.1, uh, one of the four living creatures, their voice was like thunder. Or in Revelation 19.1, when the multitudes in heaven were praising Jesus, Uh, And it sounded like many peals of thunder. What we have here coming from the heavens is not something that sounds like thunder. 
It's not something that is just thunderous in the way that it reflects what is coming from heaven. No, John delineates it as being the seven thunders. This is something that all other things are like but are not in fullness or completeness. This voice, I think we can come to the conclusion, is the voice of God. Now, depending on your view on the first question, which is, who is this being? That's going to affect the way you write your commentary, right? Because some people will say, this is the voice of Jesus. And the mighty angel speaks as a lion and Jesus speaks from heaven. But if you think that mighty angel is Jesus, probably going to land in the place where you think that this is the voice of God the Father, right? Speaking from heaven. And uh, as far as what the seven thunders say, um, I'm very happy to report back to you that just about every single one of the half a billion commentaries that I read said, we ain't going to go there, sister. We ain't going to go there, girlfriend, because why? Because the seven thunders said so. Lock it up. Don't write it down. This is not for anybody. And we can talk about why that is. We, we could even probably say, well, I... Th- I mean, okay, this is a this is an interlude that comes in the midst of severe judgment that leads to further judgment. We could probably ascertain that this is not about the best chicken noodle soup recipe on the planet, right? Like if if we're looking at the context, we would look and say, okay, this probably is dealing in some way with judgment of the judgments that are coming, of maybe how it's going to lay up. But, but the point is, we don't know. I don't know. You don't know. And we need to be okay with that. This isn't something for us to know. And if you've read through Scripture before, you know enough to know that God's ways are not always our ways. And there are things that He holds that we are not meant to hold. Even in judgment, even, even, even in this where he's laying out so much of what's going to happen in the future, there is still stuff, though, that he holds that we're not made to hold. And actually, I'm really thankful for that. You know, I think of, I think of my children who I love, and there are, just, there, are, there are things about this world that they don't have to know. You ever see that in your kids where all of a sudden somebody on the bus or uh, some movie that they, that they see that they shouldn't have seen or, or somebody says something to them in such a way where you just know that something's changed that they can't get back and you wish that you could take it back from them because they shouldn't have to hold that yet. It shouldn't be something for them to hold I think our God who knows our weakness, our God who knows our frame, our God who knows the, the limits to who we are and what we can hold, I think there are things in His love, I know that there are things in His love and by His grace that He says, no, you don't have to hold that. I'm not even going to allow you to write that. You heard that and that's okay, but you will not write it because it's not theirs to hold. I'm so thankful that we serve a loving, caring Father like that who never gives us more than what we can bear. And so while we can speculate on the source of the seven thunders, we should avoid speculation where God commands silence. Next question that we have to wrestle through 
What is this mystery of God that is being revealed in the days of the seventh trumpet? In verse 5 it says, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So this mighty angel, sent from heaven, now swears an oath by the name of God. That in the days to come, following the seven trumpet blasts, there would be no more delay and that the mystery of God would be fulfilled as promised. It's important for us to note that biblical mysteries are not like whodunits. Uh, there, there are not these things that, that need our solving or that we have to put the, the pieces of the puzzle together to figure out and then we've, we've solved this great mystery of God. Instead, biblical mysteries are plans and purposes specifically pertaining to God that are revealed by Him in His perfect timing. So they're things that are momentarily hidden, kept for generations, kept for the time that they are supposed to be revealed, that they are supposed to be unraveled, that they are supposed to be known. So think the the Messiah who would come. That was a mystery for ages. They knew that one would come, but they didn't know who or when or what, what exactly it was going to look like. And yet Christ fulfilled that mystery in His coming. They didn't have to go and say, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? No, in God's perfect timing, he revealed himself. He revealed the mystery of the gospel as displayed in Jesus. And you'll see these mysteries all throughout the Old Testament. Paul loves to talk about mysteries. Just loves to bring up the mysteries of this and the mysteries of that. And here we have a mystery of God that is going to be revealed in this season of the seventh trumpet. So what is the mystery that is going to be revealed along with the blowing of this seventh trumpet. I agree with commentator George Eldon Ladd's conclusion. Uh, his view is shared by just about everybody out there, but it's written so much more succinctly, which I appreciate. He says, The mystery of God is His total redemptive purpose, which includes the judgment of evil and the eschatological salvation of His people. So the mystery that is being revealed, the mystery that is being unveiled, is the fullness of the plan of redemption. In other words, the fulfilled mystery is the full full revelation of God's plan of redemption. That's what's going to be revealed. As the seventh trumpet sounds... And as we enter into this, this final stanza of judgment known as the bulls, we are going to see the full revelation, the full unveiling of God's plan to not only defeat sin and to give it its just punishment forever, but to roll out the red carpet on His plan of redemption for all mankind, for a new heavens, for a new earth. 
He will answer the groans of all of creation that we hear in Romans 8, longing to be made new. He'll answer the cries of the prophets who ask, how long until you punish the wicked once and for all? And He will answer the cry of the martyrs whose voices we saw just a little earlier today, but that we also read about in Revelation 6, 9-11, through 11, where it says, When He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for their witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told the rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been killed. And so this mighty angel who we read about in this chapter declares no more delay. No more delay in this plan of redemption. No more delay in the full revelation of this plan that will answer every cry, both of this world as we know it, and, as, and, and the cry of believers everywhere who are saying, How long, O Lord? A cry that some have heard through the ages and listened to and counted as slowness on God's part. We studied that in Second Peter where people would look at God and, and these years that were passing and say, what's the holdup? Your son came and died and apparently paid for the sins of the whole world. He, he's apparently going to come back as king. What's the holdup? What are we waiting for? Maybe this whole thing isn't real. Maybe, maybe, maybe your God is just slow to the draw. Maybe he doesn't care as, as much as you think he cares. And yet we hear in that same chapter that God isn't slow, He's patient. He's kind. Not longing for a single person to perish, but that all would come to a saving knowledge of His Son. And so He waits. He waits patiently. Enduring the mocking and the, and the scorn and the... And the, and the the pride of man and our systems and our kings who say we don't need you and we won't worship you. And yet the promise here in this chapter is that there will come a day where there's no more delay. Where there's no more patience in holding back His plan and the unfolding of it. And that should both excite us as believers, but it should also terrify us if we have not placed our faith in Jesus. That the one who waits patiently has a day in mind where the trumpet will blow and he will wait no longer. I say that not to, uh, not to scare you, not to be a hellfire and brimstone preacher, but to inform you on what the Word of God actually says and promises because the oath that He makes, He makes in the name of the one true God. And so the promise that He makes is in the very name of the one who's going to carry it out. And He says there will be a day where there is no more delay. 
which help makes light of our next question, which is, what is this little scroll? And why is it bittersweet? Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go and take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll and from the hand of the angel and I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages. So again, there's a lot going on here. I'll I'll do my best to condense it in a helpful way. Uh, To those who think that this is uh, just an angel, they see the scroll as something different than the scroll that Jesus had in his hands uh, in in uh, Revelation chapter 5. Because why would this angel have Jesus' scroll? And both scrolls... um, are not defined the same way, even though they come from the same Greek word. This scroll is defined as a little scroll, where uh, the other scroll, though it had the same base Greek word, it was just described as a scroll. More, uh, You could also translate that, that as a book. So it denotes something that's a little bigger in stature. Now others would look at this and say, no, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. This is clearly a picture of Jesus and He is holding in His hand the only scroll that we have talked about up to this point. And the only reason why that scroll is defined as little is because He is so clearly defined as massive in this text. And anything that He is going to be holding is probably going to be defined as little. Both would agree whether you think it's an angel holding a different scroll or Jesus holding the scroll Both sides of the fence would agree that this scroll pertains to judgment. And the reason why is because this chapter really should draw our minds. Now I know, we're in what? We're in November. And all of you start your read the Bible in a year plan in January 1st. And you're all very diligent about that, which means you read through Ezekiel, what, sometime in like July? Maybe June, right? You got through it in June. And so it's been a while. It's been a while since you've been in Ezekiel, since you had that going in the car while you were blow drying your hair and doing whatever else. Like, I know you do that with your read the Bible in a year plan. Just kidding. Just me. Um, but no, we, we, when you read in Ezekiel, you have pretty much the same story mirrored here. Okay, You have Ezekiel given a scroll by the Lord and he's told to eat it. And that scroll has on it very specific judgments for the nation of Israel. And so he eats this sweet scroll. Sweet because the words of God are always sweet. The promises of God are always sweet. Even the judgments of God that are hard because they come from him and they are rooted in him and they are written because they are his words. They're sweet. And yet once he consumes them, once he swallows them, they make his stomach bitter because... They're pretty harsh judgments on the people of Israel. And here we have John, a couple hundred years later, eating a similar scroll, only this scroll pertains not just to judgments on the nation of Israel, but judgments that are going to be carried out on a much larger scale. Judgments against the entire rest of the world and mankind that remains after the trumpets, after the seals. 
And so we have almost the exact same thing taking place. So again, what is this scroll and why is it bittersweet? The scroll holds the bitter reality of God's final judgments leading to the sweet conclusions of God's plan of redemption, which again leads us to our final question. Why does John eat the scroll and how does it speak to our response as believers today? Well, as we have already read in the passage, John, like the prophet Ezekiel, was told to eat this scroll. A scroll holding the words and promises of God, which are always sweet. A scroll holding the bitter reality of a holy God's just judgment on all of sin and evil. Just as he promised the prophets long ago that he would. A scroll holding the final act in God's master plan of redemption. A plan to make all things new. This is what John consumes. What does that mean? What does that mean to take words such as this and, and, and eat them, consume them? What it means is that he's doing more than just hearing them or affirming them or saying, yeah, I believe that that's going to happen or, or yeah, I hear you, God. Consuming it is a picture of total absorption. Total immersion. It is, it is, it is a picture of these words that God has given him, the word of God becoming a part of him, becoming the thing that sustains him, that fuels him, that drives him. This is not just a truth that he affirms or mentally ascends to or ascribes to or likes or follows on social media. This becomes a part of him. And it makes complete and total sense why prior to receiving the commission that he was given from the angel from that point of what he was going to do, that what comes before it is the consumption, the total absorption of the word of what comes next. Both the hard and the good. Both the sweet and the bitter. Because you see, for John... He consumed something that led him to someone. Faces, nations, peoples. This wasn't just a general gospel call. John was going to be sent from this place with a very specific duty in mind. And so as we look at what the consumption of God's Word, both His judgments and His promises should lead us to, I think we see, first of all, consumption represents total absorption of God's Word, leading to passionate proclamation to the entire world. That's what it led John to. Beloved, that is exactly what it should lead us to. And as we look at our world today, I gotta tell you, when you listen to the nightly news, it looks a whole lot more like the, like the beginning of what Jesus calls birthing pains in Matthew 24 than it doesn't. I'm not saying that Jesus is gonna come back in a week or in a year, but I would not be surprised to see him in my lifetime. And I would not be surprised to see him in the lifetime of my children. We should not be ignorant to the season of the Lord's return, even if we cannot know the day or the hour. And as we look at our world, 
should it not propel us all the more into it with the saving message of the gospel? And I understand that every generation has always said, well, we're going to be the generation of the Lord's return. And how dare we not approach our world with the same mindset? What gives us the right as believers to not think with the same level of intensity, of seriousness, of desperation as we look at our neighbors, as we look at our co-workers, as we look at our checkout people? Should we not have the same level of urgency? John was given a message of what comes next and it propelled him out into the world. It should not pacify us. And if your theology allows you to look at the world around us and what it's going through and to say, eh, get new theology. Like seriously, we should, if not us, then who? We should allow what comes next to propel us out into a world that desperately needs to know the sweet promises of God and the bitter realities of the judgment that awaits. Now more than ever, we need the church to be the church it has been called to be. And so my prayer for us as we read through this passage, as we transition into the bowls and into the end of Revelation, that we wouldn't just do so in a way that allows us to not bicker with one another over theological viewpoints or, or do so in a way where we can just, hey, we can all get along and get through this together. No, my hope, my prayer is that we would keep our eyes on the end, both the beauty and the devastating reality And allow us to see it in light of those around us, in light of our neighbors, in light of our friends, in light of those who we don't even know but run into. And I hope that a chapter like this wakes us up to posture ourselves in such a way in prayer where we are prepared to go into all the world with the hope of the Gospels, into all nations, to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to learn and observe and obey all that He has commanded because that's what we're commanded to do. That's our commission. And that does not change. Whether we see Jesus in five years or 500 years, that's what He left us here to do. And may we faithfully do it all the more as the day of His return draws ever more near. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You for this passage as it causes us to lift our eyes to what You've called us to do, to the people You've called us to be. I pray that we would faithfully carry out the work that You have called us to do and that You would find us doing just that as You return. Lord, I pray that we would be the salt the light, the ambassadors, the soldiers, the bride that you've called us to be until you come back for us, our groom, our savior, our king. We love you, Jesus. Show us what it looks like. 
to love you more and to love those around us enough to share with them the bittersweet realities of your word and the promises that fill it. We love you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.